I always knew that to live like a gentleman, I must have money. Pengallon! Half my friends living like paupers, and I'm living like a prince. More alive than half the people here. Look at them. Somewhere on the shore, a beacon is going out. No one gets killed in the wreck! No one, you hear? Welcome to 22nd episode of Foreign Correspondence Deeper into Hitchcock Podcast. My name is Michał Oleszczyk and I'm joined as always by my co-host Sebastian Smoliński. Hello. It's a great pleasure to welcome you in our podcast in which we discuss every single movie in Alfred Hitchcock's filmography in chronological order. We are officially finishing the British period of Hitchcock's uh, filmography with a film that has very few admirers, but it seems that uh, it's actually a film that in the recent years probably um, gained uh, a more fan base than it had in the previous um, period. Today we'll be discussing Jamaica Inn, based on a novel by Daphne du Maurier and made in 1939, just before Hitchcock made an official move to the United States and Hollywood. And today we will be discussing uh, Jamaica Inn with a wonderful writer, uh, Dan Callahan, who is joining us from Brooklyn, New York. Hello, Dan. Hello. Very nice to have you on the show. Dan is an author, a critic, uh, author of wonderful books. Uh, he actually authored a book on Hitchcock and on uh, Hitchcock and his actors. The uh, book uh, title is The Camera Lies acting for Hitchcock and he also wrote a number of books on uh, acting in general but also on specific actresses uh, one devoted to Vanessa Redgrave one devoted to Barbara Stanwyck uh, we are very pleased and honored to have you on our show today thank you for having me you guys okay. I'm always happy to speak about Hitchcock It's a pleasure and let's start by addressing the elephant in the room, as it were, the fact that this is a film, one of the very few films in the Hitchcock oeuvre that has a very strong and uh, one would almost uh, say uh, bombastic performance at the, at the very center, the, the, the performance by Charles Lafton, and uh, it's a, the, the movie basically uh, is a reworking of Daphne du Maurier's novel. Actually, it's quite a deep reworking of the plot. But first of all, let's ask you about your relationship with this film. Do are you are you also as critical of it as uh, most of the authors that are writing about about it are? What's your uh, story with uh, watching uh, Jamaica Inn over the years? Well, I think for myself and also for a lot of people who are interested in Hitchcock, we first saw Jamaica in, in very poor public domain prints. And then so that coupled with the fact that he himself dismissed it, it was often spoke of negatively. So I remember really you know, having a very negative reaction to it. But I think as with so many films, when they undergo a restoration and you suddenly can see the the shadows you can see the compositions you know the, I think it's a fairly recent restoration that the uh, the Cohen uh, organization did of the film uh, I think that has shifted the way that I have thought about it and I also think that it's, it's a Hitchcock film that even though it wasn't his and even though you know he didn't have anything to do with the original script he tried to uh, bring in his collaborators. But Charles Lawton had more power on this project than he did. Charles Lawton was a big star at that point. He 
had come back to England. He was controlling it because he and Eric Palmer were producing it. And they had produced several films before that, like St. Martin's Lane with Vivian Lee, The Beachcomber with his wife, Elsa Lanchester. And so catering to Lawton was a big part of what was going on here. And it was a real tug of war. And I think the famous Hitchcock quote about it is you can't direct a Lawton picture, you can only referee, you know. Um, and it was a, the case where Lawton was coming off of this string of performances, like this was his greatest period of inventiveness. And it was released in the same year, he gave perhaps his greatest performance as Quasimodo in The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Uh, and so set beside that performance, which is maybe the peak of his uh, creativity, of his genius even, and I think that's a very extreme word to use, but I don't think it's a word that you, it's a word you can use for Lawton. The character in Jamaica Inn, he doesn't have a, a read on what he wants to do. It's like he's always trying out different things that might work. And I think the thing is, as I can, have continued watching the film, that has its, you know, it's like this, he play, he's playing this man who has no center. And it's, you can say, if you want to be critical, well, the performance has no center, but I think you could also look at it as a way of he's playing this broken person who doesn't know what he's doing. You could also look at it like that. So as with many Hitchcock films, there are different ways that you can interpret it. Yes, this is a great observation. And I was really thrilled when I was reading your part on Jamaica in, in your book, your uh, chapter, because you, you offer many great metaphors for this film and for this performance, uh, two of which you already uh, mentioned just now. So like uh, this notion of being out of center, which is really interesting. And I think also you, you note the, the makeup, right? Which is, which kind of is even, we could say, the makeup is covering Charles Lawton, right? It's his- It's his... when he turns, he has this very strange nose that he's put on. But the thing that's most terrifying are the eyebrows. He's, he's stuck these caterpillar-like eyebrows on his forehead and they're much higher than anyone's eyebrows ever are. And there's something about that that's so creepy. It's so, <laughs> you know, it's so, I mean, he's this character he's playing there, it's these mixed signifiers. It's like there's these things that should seem absurd and almost comic. And yet the fact that they're comic is what makes us uneasy. And, and, then, and then there's the thing of when he sees the heroine, he falls in lust with her, really. And he starts quoting Byron and he's very taken with her. Uh, and so, so there's, there's a tug of war between him and between the heroine. And I think it should be mentioned that Maureen O'Hara, who's playing the heroine in Jamaica, was very much Lawton's choice. She was very much Lawton's protege. He was very taken with her. And then she also played Esmeralda in The Hunchback of Notre Dame with him in Hollywood. Uh, and it's a fascinating Hitchcock movie in that the heroine is very active. And, you know, and that really has to do with Maureen O'Hara. You know, Maureen O'Hara, everything about her is, you, if, if there's anything bad going on, she, if she gets wind of it, you're gonna be sorry, you know? And so that's, and she's a kind of voyeuristic heroine, as I talk about in my book. She's always seeing things and looking at things. And usually in Hitchcock films, 
that's the male perspective of, you know, we think of rear window or we think of they're looking, whereas she's, it's this the female in Jamaica and is the one who is looking here. And that's a, one of many points of interest. There is this great shot when she's peeping through the hole in the, in the floor or like the part of the, of the attic. So yes, that's, that's, uh, so that's very interesting because on the one hand, the Charles Lawton character is a master of events, you know, he's pulling the strings, but on the other, he's, as you as you as you're describing his he cannot find himself and many of his associates or friends or servants consider him you know deranged in a serious way they comment upon it all the time which i think is very interesting i don't know if you both of you would agree with this but i had this hints maybe it's a far-fetched analogy but for me this character you know um is in a way reminds me of Noah Cross from Chinatown. Of course, it's totally different, you know, the, the metaphysical level, let's say, and the, the quality of filmmaking in many ways is, is much different. But there is something very uneasy in these scenes with Maureen O'Hara, which you also describe it in your book. You you mentioned, I, I quoted that, it's you mentioned that these scenes towards the end, they have this extremely unpleasant quality, right? That he's trying to seduce her or by force, right? To rape her in a way which is very unsettling and points us towards vertigo for example because in in one moment he's mentioning that he will buy clothes for her right he will dress her like like scotty in vertigo so i think that's something we can she's like a doll to him and then and in a way that's like it's another kind of maligned hitchcock movie under capricorn michael wilding's dandy character who's very much like the lawton character in jamaica and the way that he looks at Ingrid Bergman in that movie is a, as a kind of project. And it's like he wants to dress her. And see, the thing is, in Vertigo, that's very much this heterosexual male sexual, uh, you know, there's a fetish quality to it. Whereas under Capricorn, and to a certain extent in Jamaica Inn until the end, it's almost as if there's a disconnection between sexuality. And it's like the, the man wants to dress her as if, you know, I can picture Sir Humphrey maybe wanting to dress in clothes, in female clothes himself, you know, because he's a dandy and he's, he tries anything out, you know, and then of course he's obsessed with money and maintaining his own standard of living. And, you know, he considers himself, you know, someone who I know how to spend what he says, I know how to spend money. So that's why I should have it, you know, He thinks he's an aristocrat. And so really, when he looks at Maureen O'Hara's heroine, he wants to collect her, you know, as a collector would, you know, and of course, this is a man who's deranged. He even speaks about, oh, there's insanity in the family and everything, and people are always talking about it. And Lord knows, you know, he certainly seems like he could do anything at any time. And that is, you know, a part of insanity. And Maureen O'Hara's character even, even says, you know, He's mad. He doesn't know what he's doing, even though she's been put through hell. By it's like she understands that she's dealing with someone who cannot control himself. There's, I think, a deep perversity to the character, which also stems from the very troubled path that, you know, th- this particular character took 
to even you know mm, arrive on the screen because in the original novel uh, the the actual villain is is the vicar and uh, by, by the very end of the novel we learned that you know this this priest is actually you know a, a false priest he's he's pulling the strings he is the godfather of this little small you know mafia that that robs the mm, uh, the, the ships that are wrecking uh, on the Cornish um, coast and uh, apparently for a number of reasons of which I think you know Lawton's vanity as a star was the chief one it was reworked completely so that it's actually you know Sir Humphrey who pulls all the strings and uh, he and we are very aware of 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 him pulling the strings from from almost the very beginning I mean it's, it's revealed I think in the 10th minute of the movie and even before you can sort of figure it out that it's that it's that it's him and uh, what would you say about the, the very first image that we get of him this sort of you know gobsmacking image of him eating you know like with gusto and uh, you know inviting a horse into his dining room and then the second he sees Maureen O'Hara he starts to uh, this this her he you know he's actually pulling clothes peeling off the clothes of her this is one of the probably most deranged entries in Hitchcock's films well I think it certainly should be seen as a reference to Lawton's most famous performance of that time the private life of Henry VIII which he won the Academy Award for which has that famous scene where he's eating and throwing the the, so, so his image at that time that was really something that was in people's minds and so this portrait of him as this man eating and doing and the horse and everything it's almost well I think as you know, probably know, uh, he was going to play Claudius in the so, uh, in I Claudius uh, for Joseph von Sternberg, which hadn't worked out. And so with Lawton, it's this thing, or he had played the Emperor Nero in the Sign of the Cross. So he was always playing these men who had power, and the power had gone to their heads, and they were doing just anything that came into their heads. And of course, Hitchcock is interested in that. You know, it's it's the thing Hitchcock you know, said that you know he he wasn't he was trying to uh, take control of the project, but and Lawton was always you know taking control of it in his own way. But I think you can feel Hitchcock, you know, what his interests are. It, it permeates the film, even though you know he said that he wasn't as interested as say with some of the others. I think it's you can tell it's a Hitchcock film from beginning to end. So maybe the horse also comes from this uh, Roman emperor's tradition, right? Like, you know. Yeah, the Caligula or Nero or, yeah. or Henry VIII or any of these men that Lawton ha had been playing. Grotesques, you know. I mean, and then as, as you say, in the novel, he, he, he's, he's a vicar and you only find out that he's pulling the strings later on. Now, see, that's interesting because Hitchcock always was speaking about the difference between suspense and surprise. And he always liked suspense better than surprise. And so you would think that revealing that Sir Humphrey is the man behind the shipwrecks 10 minutes in would be good in a, instead of a surprise at the end that, it's, that it would generate some kind of suspense. But because of the way that the plot is structured, it doesn't really generate suspense. You just know it. And you don't really get, you don't think, oh, will Sir Humphrey be caught? Like it isn't structured that way. And so he isn't able to really do anything with suspense, which he, which he might have if the plot was structured in a different way. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, Lawton had hired J.B. Priestley to beef up his own role. 
you know? And so I think it, whatever you think of Jamaica, Anne, uh, it really can be felt that, you know, this actor is being catered to. And in some ways, you know, the film is being kind of pulled this way and that in order to satisfy his needs. And Hitchcock is being put in a kind of subordinate role, which was not a role he was ever accustomed to, ever, really. I can't think of another film actually where an actor subordinated Hitchcock. The, perhaps Mr. and Mrs. Smith, which he made for his friend, Carol Lombard, and which is one of my favorite Hitchcock movies. And I think it relates to Jamaica Inn in that even though Mr. and Mrs. Smith is not a film that he had had any, uh, the script had not been, you know, the script was ready for him. He didn't have any, uh, like he used, used to like to have his writers, you know, do things. Even though he wasn't involved in the development of it, the Hitchcock permeates every bit of that script, which is a very standard screwball comedy script. And of course, Hitchcock permeates Jamaica Inn, this gothic melodrama, which was more his meat anyway, even though he didn't have uh, the control he would have liked to. So um, maybe just one question, one last question about the acting for the time, at least. Uh, you also are the author of two books about the history of American acting. Uh, so maybe in this vein, because I had uh, this idea that maybe there was something about the, the style of acting in the 1930s. Maybe you could corroborate or, or uh, dismiss this claim that there was maybe bigger acceptance of these uh, over the top, maybe a bit grotesque or as we would say nowadays, campy performers. I'm thinking, I'm thinking about Bela Lugosi, who was, of course, a very special case. But, you know, I think about, I think about Dracula and Charles Lawton from Jamaica Inn. And I think there are some similarities in this, you know, the way this subverted masculinity appears on screen, the way they are, as you mentioned, grotesque and uh, affectionate and, and uh, dandy. Would you say that there, there was something specific to the period or that's just, you know, two very separate cases? I, I actually don't think so. Um, I think as far as acting goes, an actor then or now can choose to go big and it's a risk. And if they choose to go big, they need to be able to back it up. You know, the worst thing in the world is when an actor then or now goes big and it just seems feels like surface or it just feels like they've made a big choice but they haven't backed it up. And they're just, you can tell that there's no life behind it. There's no soul behind it. Lawton was a great actor because you know, he really labored over his characterizations and he compared them to a pregnancy. You know? And he was much like the later method actors in that it wasn't even the way that they would you know, take apart a script. You know, he thought of himself as an artist. And he would, he would think to be, you know, to be inspired, he would listen to a piece of music or he would, he would go out and look at you know, a landscape or he'd look at paintings and he'd say, now I have it. You know? And directors like Garson Kanan and Hitchcock himself, you know, they would mock this as, you know, why does he need all of this? Why doesn't he just you know, do it? But that was his way. And the results when he was at his greatest you know, bear out that whatever he needed, to get to where he wanted to go. This is a great artist. You know, if you look at him in um, Les Miserables in particular, I mean, he's tremendous in that as this man who wants to be this kind of butch, you know, and he's a wimp 
but he wants to be this big masculine type guy and it's an agony. And he, Lawton puts that whole agony onto the screen. He puts the whole thing up there so that it's, with Lawton, you're dealing with the elemental. You're dealing with archetypes. You're not dealing so much with, here's the specific person in a specific situation. He's shooting for something much larger. He's shooting for this person represents this huge concept. So that's why he needed to wrestle and, and do all these things you know, that, that might've worked out or might've not. And as I said, you know, this is the year when he was giving maybe his greatest performance as Quasimodo. So it, there wasn't much maybe left over for, you know, Sir Humphrey and Jamaica in. And this also, after those two, these two movies in 1939, in the 1940s, his work is not as pressurized. The great work is really finished for a while. His work after this movie and Hunchback of Notre Dame is much more casual. Um, and Simon Callow writes about this in his Charles Lawton biography, which is a really great book about Lawton, but also about acting. Well, I, I actually have two more questions about the acting in the film. Uh, I'm thinking of Maureen O'Hara, who for some reason didn't become associated as a great Hitchcock heroine, uh, probably, you know, because of this film and how, how it, you know, uh, wasn't very well received. But in some ways, I think she fits the bill perfectly. But on others, it's something went wrong. Do you think that Maureen O'Hara, for whom, you know, this performance, if I'm correct, this was the first performance in which she was actually billed as O'Hara. Her, her real name was Fitzsimmons. Do you do you think, can you imagine sort of an alter, alternative history in which Maureen O'Hara be, becomes a, a Hitchcock regular? Or was there a mismatch here? And what would no, that mismatch absolute be? Absolute mismatch. And that's why it's so interesting. Maureen O'Hara is very si simple. If you want to be a Hitchcock heroine or a Hitchcock hero, He's only interested in actors who they present a surface that says one thing, but underneath it's, he might be the exact opposite. He's fascinated by contrast. With Maureen O'Hara, you don't get any contrast. She plays one thing strongly and that's it. And there's nothing else, you know, she's, she's tough and she's going, to, she's going to be, and it's very strong. It's like a very strong color. He's, he's not interested in that. That's not, you know, and which is why, you know, it, this was not his choice. Uh, it was Lawton's choice. Um, so, so no, she's not really a Hitchcock type actor. And Lawton in his own very different way is not a Hitchcock type actor. Whereas what's fascinating is that Leslie Banks who played the father in the first Man Who Knew Too Much is also in Jamaica Inn. And as I say in my book, if you didn't know it was the same actor, you, I wouldn't know that it was the father. You know, like he's, he's, he's so transformed. And so that does interest Hitchcock, someone who can transform to such an extent that you might not even know it's the same person. But he's not interested in this very strong, definite thing that Reno Harris is doing. He's also interested in, I mean, one of the things that fascinates me most in Jamaica in is Emlyn Williams as, as uh, the, the peddler who, I mean, he's wearing an earring. It could be Alan Cumming, you know, and then he gets the cop to smack him and then he obviously enjoys being smacked. I mean, this is pure Hitchcock here because he loves to put in the, these little perversities, you know. Uh, 
So, I mean, that's a very, that's another very interesting uh, part of the film is Emlyn Williams. And Emlyn Williams was gay and he was, uh, you know, best known as a playwright for having written Corn is Green and Night Must Fall. And he brings this very sexy, very modern uh, feel. You know, he's, he's, he's real non-binary. You know, he's not, he's not male or female. And he's interested in the heroine. And it isn't the thing of, oh, he's gay and he's maybe... He is the character as he plays him is up for anything. Mm-hmm. And see, and what's fascinating is, you know, Sir Humphrey, the fact that he could do anything is menacing. Whereas Emlyn Williams, his character, the fact that he's up for anything sexually or up for anything, it's enticing. See, so that's a fascinating contrast. Like the Emlyn Williams character in the book is menacing and he's a jerk, you know? And I think, as I remember, he humiliates uh, this handicapped guy in the book. And so it's a completely different thing in the Hitchcock movie. In the Hitchcock movie, the character is sexy and he has a sense of possibility and it feels healthy. It doesn't feel menacing. Whereas Sir Humphrey couldn't be sicker. Well, there's this one moment towards the beginning when we see, actually we don't see it because there's an off-screen killing during the you know raid on the on the shipwreck and uh you know he comes back into into the frame and he sort of wipes his knife you know <laughs> of the blood and it, it also has this sort of obscene i think uh, i think hitchcock was in on the joke you know uh, of, of of the sort of you know bloody dripping knife that's being wiped on our before our eyes and uh, i would say there's it's an incredible presence in the film you know uh, evelyn evelyn williams because you you mentioned this that you know he's with the earring and you know even with the with the very knowing smiles that he keeps, you know, sort of throwing right and left, it's almost as if he's in on the joke that you know, like this is not, like there's something sexual here that cannot be even expressed in the language of British cinema of that of the period. But he's having fun with it, I would say. Very much so, and I think we could go even further and say that Sir Humphrey, and especially like you were mentioning the end the, when when he's tying uh, Marino Hera up and all that. I think part. Of, we should mention technically, part of what's so disturbing about that is the way it's shot. And all of Lawton's lines sound like they were dubbed at some other point. And they, like, it, it all feels very layered on in a way that's very creepy. So, so there's all of that, but then there's the Emlyn Williams character who, even though he's a supporting character, it's almost like he's being set up as a contrast. And if we want to be very personal about it, I feel like Hitchcock, probably does identify with Sir Humphrey as this figure who, you know, is just not able to do anything that he would like to do. Whereas the Emlyn Williams character, I feel like Hitchcock himself would maybe like to be like the Emlyn Williams character. You know, he, he knows that he's partly Sir Humphrey but the fantasy is maybe I could be you know, putting someone, making a character like that and putting that character into the film. It's like he's offering you this alternative, this fantasy. And he, his greatness is in wanting a fantasy, wanting some utopian sort of thing. Mm-hmm. He, he, he's not someone who, who says, like he, he's someone who as an artist is always looking for something better, you know? And I think that in the Emlyn Williams character, he sees that, you know, and, and, but he foregrounds because he has to, 
the sickness of the Lawton villain. Let's discuss the, the, the visuals just a bit. Um, because as Michal mentioned, if we could create the, the canon of Hitchcock's most unloved movies, this one would be probably towards the top. But I'm very happy that we're uh, discussing, you know, the, the qualities of acting in such a detail. And we're discovering, thanks to you and your wonderful book, you know, new, new dimensions of this film. And many people just dismiss the acting in this film as well. So I'm thinking about the the simple fact that the, this movie is something new for Hitchcock on on a few levels and it's uh, since we're doing this podcast to kind of present the whole narrative I just wanted to note that so I think if I'm not mistaken it's his first period movie set Walsus in... from Vienna oh that's right that's right but it's certainly his first approach to this gothic style and what do you think how did he find himself in this movie is it just a warm-up before Rebecca you know this uh, sumptuous sets and uh, this gothic atmosphere which is I think quite different than expressionist Hitchcock it's something else how do you like it uh, in in this film I mean really this was the kind of melodrama that he you saw on stage in his youth. And I think, you know, I'd mentioned Under Capricorn before. I think it is similar to that, except you know, Under Capricorn is a little more simplified. I think this is the type of material that he is drawn to, the melodrama and a woman in peril. And, but you know, it's, it's different in that, you know, the heroine is, she's in peril, but you never really worry about Maureen O'Hara. You know, I think whereas Hitchcock does want you to worry about the woman in, in a lot of his other movies, I never worry about her. I worry about anybody who's around Maureen O'Hara. When she finds out what they're up to, she's going to, yeah, you know, like there's something so uh, about, about her that like, you, you, you're, you're not going to worry that she's in distress particularly. Um, but as far as the material goes, you know, he was, he had one foot out the door. He was about to go to America to shoot Rebecca. And really it was something that he just got himself into and that he, and then he would prefer not to have. Um, but I think it was interesting that he he's did this Daphne du Maurier material right before then going to have the great chance of Rebecca. Uh, and you know, when he did Rebecca, he again, didn't, he had to subordinate himself in some ways to David O. Selznick. Um, and also to the original novel, because Rebecca, of course, is much more faithful to the original novel than Jamaica Inn is. Jamaica Inn was pulled this way and that, uh, mainly because of Charles Lawton. And Daphne du Maurier herself was not happy with it. I, I like what you are saying about Maureen O'Hara and, you know, the way that we don't worry about her. It almost seems like the very thing that makes it impossible for her to be a good Hitchcock heroine the very same thing made her into a perfect John Ford heroine. You know this sort of you know this force. I would I, I would say um, forcefulness. What do you think about? Because I, I'm not sure. Maybe I didn't get there yet in your book. But what do you think about Hitchcock as an actor? You know, because we we could you know we, we could consider him an actor, especially in the in the 1950s when he was a real personality on screen. It's it's very interesting and. Uh... Towards the end, when I was writing my book, I, I thought I need to look at all the TV episodes again, and I need to consider him as a camera presence. And that was very telling because, you know, I looked at all the intros and the outros of his show and Hitchcock is a Hitchcock actor himself. 
in that he presents to the camera the face, the voice, the gubrious. And to an American, it's like, you know, he's the gentleman's gentleman. He's classy. You know, he's, he's going to tell you the, the secrets of the, the, the man of the house or the lady of the house. Um, or the bathroom. And, yeah, and, and there's something about him as a camera presence that he puts you on edge because you don't know what you're getting. You don't know, he's not reassuring. Usually on television, the host needs to be assuring, reassure. Hitchcock is not reassuring as a camera presence at all. So sometimes he'll speak very rapidly because you know that he needs to get in a certain amount of words before they go to the sponsor, or he'll slow the words down. You know, he's, he's playing you like a puppet. He's playing you like an audience. And you can also tell this thing of, he wants to idealize himself in a certain way. You know, Hitchcock wanted to be Cary Grant. And he had a feeling that maybe because the camera lies, which is the title of my book, maybe if he shoots himself in a certain way, he can become Cary Grant. You know, that's the hope. That's the romanticism of Hitchcock. And I think that he himself wanted to, you know, he, want, he wanted to become this thing, this romantic image, because he himself knew that Cary Grant wasn't Cary Grant either. Cary Grant was this thing that he put together, his voice, everything. And it was part of the way you know, he was shot and everything. So I think it's very revealing to watch him as an actor, as a camera presence on his show, because he himself is the type of actor that he wanted in his films. Someone for whom you're never quite sure what you're dealing with. And that's part of being hopeful. And that's part of being a romantic. I could be this, but maybe I could be that. And then that's part of the terror too, because I could be seem like a nice person, but underneath I could actually be a killer. Mm -hmm. His killers often seem like very reasonable, nice, you know, people, charming, you know. And then the heroes are you are, can be very unlikable. You know, oh, that's a fantastic <laughs> set of observations, <laughs> and thank you for that. And also, since you know, we we invite different Hitchcock scholars, so that's why I'm coming back to your book all the time because I think it's a fantastic entry into you know Hitchcock scholarship and and Hitchcock writing actually because it's also I would say a piece of literature. For example, the way you drift towards other issues like for example uh, at the end of the chapter about uh, Jamaica Inn you uh, wonder about Barbara Stanwyck who's one of your favorites one of your very favorites and you clearly state that you know she she couldn't be a good Hitchcock actress so my question is uh, do you have your favorite quasi Hitchcock movie with Stanwyck I'm thinking about sorry wrong number of this as this thriller where she was you know uh, a great presence. Do you think we could consider it as a kind of Hitchcock movie and maybe dream further about Hitchcock and Stanwyck? You know, no, because to me, sorry, wrong number, it's very simple. And she's playing this woman who, you know, there's nothing to discover. I mean, sorry, wrong number started out as a radio play, which you know, Agnes Moorhead did it on the radio annually, practically. And you know, 20 minutes on there, it is a perfect radio play. Whereas that movie, there's all these flashbacks 
and Anatole Litvak pads it out, you know, and Stanwick, Betty Davis, Catherine Hepburn, these very idiosyncratic and very definite people, they aren't Hitchcock people. Um, it, it isn't, it isn't, you know, Betty Davis was on his TV show and it becomes a Betty Davis movie rather than a Hitchcock sort of thing because you know what you're getting with her. She's always doing these, these big emotions and you can see exactly what's going on. Whereas he wants someone who, that, that's why quite often the best performances in Hitchcock movies are given by actors and actresses who were not thought of as great actors or who were not thought of as, they, they were maybe people who were ingenues or you know, male ingenue, like Robert Walker. You know, Robert Walker in the 40s played these aw shucks soldiers. Uh, and then so to all those years of doing that, to then have this aw shucks cute, sort of limited sort of guy reveal that he could be this psychopathic killer and strangers on a train, Hitchcock loved that sort of switch. And it's the whole thing of his about not being complacent. You know, evil has the power to assume a pleasing shape. Evil has the power to as I'm cute, I'm an Oshucks male ingenue. Does it, but, and then you're lulled, and then suddenly the knife is in your back, you know? And so Hitchcock is very, very, his whole thing is about being alert, not being complacent, because if you're complacent, evil is going to hit you over the head before you know it. Well, that's really fantastic. And, you know, I love, uh, I, I, I have a feeling that we went way beyond uh, Jamaica Inn, but it was a fantastic entry point to this world of Hitchcock as actors, director, and also as an actor, as it turns out, doing his own great performance uh, uh, and also sort of a magic act. Well, it was wonderful to have you as our guest. Uh, real pleasure. So uh, thank you so much again for fi fighting the time uh, and uh, thank you for, for the book, which we, you know, are, are really admiring and still uh, reading. Here's the, <laughs> the copy um, of it. So it was a real, real pleasure. Have a wonderful afternoon. I'll see you around and thank you again thank so you. much for doing this. Thank you so much. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> This was Dan Callahan speaking from uh, Brooklyn, New York, and uh, commenting on Jamaica Inn, but also on so much more. We do recommend Dan's uh, book, uh, The Camera Lies, Acting for Hitchcock, which is really uh, fantastic. And also Dan's other books that we mentioned in this podcast, especially his Bar Barbara Stanwyck uh, one. Any other final thoughts on Jamaica Inn? Maybe just uh, let's you know state it that we're now we're we're done with the the British period. Of course, Hitchcock will be coming back to 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 England to shoot a, a few few other movies. But basically, now this great journey starts, and I think we're both very excited because the the next movie we'll be discussing is Rebecca, the movie which really uh, almost everybody who likes classical Hollywood cinema enjoys and likes and have seen so yes so um i think it's a it's a beautiful moment in our <laughs> podcast history that we're uh departing slowly the the british isles and now we are going to america yes and we will have another special guest for our next episode which will be the rebecca episode but we will uh, keep her identity secret for now thank you so so much for listening to this episode of foreign correspondence deeper into hitchcock please Please find us on Facebook, the fan page, Foreign Correspondence Deeper into Hitchcock, and spread the word. If you like this episode of our podcast, please 
make sure to share it in your social media and we will meet you next time on the 23rd episode of Foreign Correspondence Deeper into Hitchcock.